Chapter One, Part One of Saint George and Saint Michael, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jordan. Saint George and Saint Michael, Volume One, by George MacDonald. Chapter One, Dorothy and Richard. Part One. It was the middle of autumn, and had rained all day. Through the lozenge panes of the wide oriel window, the world appeared in the slowly gathering dusk not a little dismal. The drops that clung trickling to the dim glass added rain and gloom to the landscape beyond, whither the eye passed, as if vaguely seeking that help in the distance which the dripping hollyhocks and sodden sunflowers bordering the little lawn or the honeysuckle covering the wide porch, from which the slow rain dropped ceaselessly upon the pebble paving below, could not give. Steepy slopes hedge-divided into small fields, some green and dotted with red cattle, others crowded with shocks of bedraggled and drooping corn, which looked suffering and patient. The room to which the window having this prospect belonged was large and low, with a dark floor of uncarpeted oak. It opened immediately upon the porch, and although a good fire of logs blazed on the hearth, was chilly to the sense of the old man, who, with his feet on the skin of a fallow deer, sat gazing sadly into the flames, which shone rosy through the thin hands spread out before them. At the opposite corner of the great low-arched chimney sat a lady, past the prime of life but still beautiful, though the beauty was all but merged in the loveliness that rises from the heart to the face of such as have taken the greatest step in life, that is, as the old proverb says, the step out of doors. She was plainly yet rather richly dressed, in garments of an old-fashioned and well-preserved look. Her hair was cut short above her forehead, and frizzed out in bunches of little curls on each side, on her head was a covering of dark stuff, like a nun's veil, which fell behind and on her shoulders. Close round her neck was a string of amber beads that gave a soft harmonious light to her complexion. Her dark eyes looked as if they had found repose there. So quietly did they rest on the face of the old man, who was plainly a clergyman. It was a small, pale, thin, delicately and symmetrically formed face, yet not the less a strong one, with endurance on the somewhat sad brow, and force in the closed lips, while a good conscience looked clear out of the grey eyes. They had been talking about the fast-gathering tide of opinion which, driven by the wind of words, had already begun to beat so furiously against the moles and ramparts of church and kingdom. The execution of Lord Strafford was news that had not yet begun to hiss the speaker. "'It is indeed an evil time,' said the old man. "'The world has seldom seen its like.' "'But tell me, Master Herbert,' said the lady, "'why comes it in this our day, "'for our sins or for the sins of our fathers?' "'Be it far from me to presume to set forth the ways of providence,' "'returned her guest. "'I meddle not, like some that should be wiser, "'with the calling of the prophet.' It is enough for me to know that ever and again the pride of man will gather to a mighty and fearful head, 
and, like a swollen mill-pond, overfed of rains, burst the banks that confine it, whether they be the laws of the land or the ordinances of the church, usurping on the fruitful meadows the hope of life for man and beast. Alas, he went on, with a new suggestion from the image he had been using, if the beginning of strife be as the letting out of water, what shall be the end of that strife whose beginning is the letting out of blood? Think you then, good sir, that thus it has always been, that such times of fierce ungodly tempest must ever follow upon seasons of peace and comfort, even as your cousin of holy memory, in his verses concerning the church militant rites, thus also sin and darkness follow still, the church and son, with all their power and skill? Truly it seems so, but I thank God the days of my pilgrimage are nearly numbered. To judge by the tokens the wise man gives us, the mourners are already going about my streets, the almond tree flourisheth at least. He smiled as he spoke, laying his hand on his grey head. But think of those whom we must leave behind us, Master Herbert. How will it fare with them? said the lady, in troubled tone, and glancing in the direction of the window. In the window sat a girl, gazing from it with the look of a child, who had uttered all her incantations, and could imagine no abatement in the steady rainpour. We shall leave behind us strong hearts and sound heads too, said Mr. Herbert and I bethink me there will be none stronger or sounder than those of your young cousins, my late pupils, of whom I hear brave things from Oxford, and in whose affection my spirit constantly rejoices. You will be glad to hear such good news of your relatives, Dorothy, said the lady, addressing her daughter. Even as she said the words, the setting sun broke through the mass of grey cloud, and poured over the earth a level flood of radiance, in which the red wheat glowed, and the drops that hung on every ear flashed like diamonds. The girl's hair caught it as she turned her face to answer her mother, and an aureole of brown-tinted gold gleamed for a moment about her head. "'I am glad you are pleased, madam. But you know I have never seen them or heard of them except from Master Herbert, who has, indeed, often spoke rare things of them.' "'Mistress Dorothy will still know the reason why,' said the clergyman, smiling, and the two resumed their conversation. But the girl rose, and turning again to the window, stood for a moment, wrapped in the transfiguration passing upon the world. The vault of grey was utterly shattered, but, gathering glory from ruin, was hurrying in rosy masses away from under the loftier vault of blue. The ordered shocks upon twenty fields sent their long purple shadows across the flush, and the evening wind, like the sighing that follows departed tears, was shaking the jewels from their feathery tops. The sunflowers and hollyhocks no longer cowered under the tyranny of the rain, but bowed beneath the weight of the gems that adorned them. A flame burned, as upon an altar, on the top of every tree, and the very pools that lay on the distant road had their message of light to give to the hopeless earth. As she gazed, another hue than that of the sunset, yet rosy too, gradually flushed the face of the maiden. She turned suddenly from the window, and left the room, shaking a shower of diamonds from the honeysuckle as she passed out through the porch upon the gravel walk. 
Possibly her elders found her departure a relief, for although they took no notice of it, their talk became more confidential, and was soon mingled with many names, both of rank and note, with a familiarity which to a stranger might have seemed out of keeping with the humbler character of their surroundings. But when Dorothy Vaughan had passed a corner of the house to another garden more ancient in aspect, and in some things quaint even to grotesqueness, she was in front of a portion of the house which indicated a far statelier past, closed and done with, like the rooms within those shuttered windows. The inhabited wing she had left looked like the dwelling of a yeoman farming his own land, nor did the appearance greatly belie the present position of the family. For generations it had been slowly descending in the scale of worldly account, and the small portion of the house occupied by the widow and daughter of Sir Ringwood Fawn was larger than their means could match with correspondent outlay. Such, however, was the character of Lady Vaughan, that, although she mingled little with the great families in the neighbourhood, she was so much respected that she would have been a welcome visitor to most of them. The Reverend Mr. Matthew Herbert was a clergyman from the Welsh border, a man of some note and influence, who had been the personal friend, both of his late relative George Herbert and of the famous Dr. Dunn. Strongly attached to the English church, and recoiling with disgust from the practices of the Puritans, as much, perhaps, from refinement of taste as abhorrence of schism, he had never yet fallen into such a passion for episcopacy as to feel any cordiality towards the schemes of the archbishop. To those who knew him, his silence concerning it was a louder protest against the policy of Lord than the fiercest denunciations of the Puritans. Once only had he been heard to utter himself unguardedly in respect of the primate, and that was amongst friends, and after the second glass permitted of his cousin George. "'Tut! Lord me no lord,' he said. "'A skipping bishop is worse than a skipping king.' Once also he had been overheard, murmuring to himself by way of consolement, "'Bishops pass, the church remains.' He had been a great friend of the late Sir Ringwood, and although the distance from his parish was too great to be travelled often, he seldom let a year go by without paying a visit to his friend's widow and daughter. Turning her back on the cenotaph of their former greatness, Dorothy dived into a long pleached alley, careless of the drip from overhead, and hurrying through it, came to a circular patch of thin grass, rounded by a lofty hedge of yew trees in the midst of which stood what had once been a sundial. It mattered little, however, that only the stump of a gnomon was left, seeing the hedge around it had grown to such a height in relation to the diameter of the circle, that it was only for a very brief hour or so, in the middle of a summer's day, when, of all periods, the passage of time seems least to concern humanity, that it could have served to measure his march. The spot had indeed a time-forsaken look, as if it lay buried in the bosom of the past, and the present had forgotten it. End of chapter 1, part 1